Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Hi, everybody. I am Amber Kenyon with Gateway Research Organization. We are a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta. This is the last of these networking nights with Greener Pastures Ranching for this winter. We are looking at running them again next winter, so keep an eye on your emails and on our social media for notifications on that. Tonight, we have we are very excited to have John Dinesfeld with us. He's doing work on a grazing management research project in Nova Scotia, much like the one that we have going on at the Grow Heifer Pasture. So we're going to talk about a wide range of grazing management things. But if you want to go off on a tangent, we look forward that to, to that too. John has pigs and a bunch of other stuff that he does on his own farm. So there's a lot of experience here. And then, of course, Steve and I run small animals. Tom has um, a background with small animals as well and flirts. So it's going to be a really Really good night full of, of questions. And I'm going to pass it over to Steve if you want to talk a little bit about Greener Pastures Ranching and a little bit about the Grow Heifer Pasture Project. Yes, thanks, Amber. Yeah, I'm no, excited to uh, compare notes tonight with John. Um, we uh, Greener Pastures is a custom grazing operation near Busby, Alberta, and we've been you know uh, helping to uh, put these on over the last couple of winters, and they've been more successful than I ever thought they would be, so that's great. Um, but thanks to everybody for, for showing up. We were more concerned about uh, the lack of networking because of COVID. Yes, you could still take a webinar or a seminar, but uh, it was the personal interconnections where we get so many valuable educational opportunities from. So, And we've heard lots of, of connections that have been going through this Wednesday night networking. So we're so excited about that, how people met up and now there's, you know, somebody's got a new job over at some other ranch because of it. So, or they got a good idea. So that's that's all we're after in this is just a networking session for people. So. Really excited that it's been as successful as it has been. So we're going to talk tonight. The main topic is about the uh, different styles of grazing, different styles of cell design. And uh, John is uh, kind of doing a similar thing out in uh, Nova Scotia, right, John? Yes. Yeah, Nova Scotia, as we were doing here at the Gateway Research Organization, and we're like, whoa, let's 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 compare notes and let's let's look at them. So. The heifer project that we kind of set up, it's been running for, what, 30 years plus, this heifer pasture, but it's always been different management and different things, and, and it kind of faded off for quite a few years, and it was just basically some pasture that they moved cows around on for a while. So a few years back, probably three or four years now, uh, I was on the board with uh, the Gateway Research Organization, and I said, we need to do something with that. Let's do something. Let's do it as a demo and show people what we can do. So it came up, the board came up with some ideas and we kind of put a plan together. So we took this heifer pasture that had 16 paddocks, but they were all long rectangles. So if you take a perfect square, you divide it into 16 pieces, you get um, eight long rectangles on one side and eight down the other. And there was an alleyway down the middle that brought them back to a central watering area. But it was kind of kind of dropping off and wasn't really doing what a what a good regenerative grazing system should do. So we decided let's use it as a demo. Let's take what we have there and change it up. Uh, there's a, so there's a couple of different demos that we did. One is a fencing uh, style, so a cell design style. We took the four quadrants of the quarter section and we did one of them in a pie shape. So it's four triangles, okay, leading back to the middle. Another one we did a alleyway system similar to what it was, but then we put square paddocks instead of long rectangles. 
right? So we just changed the shape of it. We left one of the quadrants, the long rectangles that we, we had. And then the other one we did actually squares, but we ran a pipeline out to the middle and put the water right out in the middle of them. And the idea here is to see what the shapes of the paddocks and the styles of the cell design, how does that affect the, you know, grazing, you know, maybe the density or the, you know, the utilization or the manure distribution or whatever. So we're, we're trying to see different styles. The one we did miss because it was too much work is a water truck. So a fifth one could have been a water truck out there that we could have parked in different spots every time, but because of the distance to this pasture and, you know, I could just picture it over the years, employees not wanting to go out there and move water trucks all the time because it's a lot of labor. So we kind of skipped the water truck method. Um, so that was one part of it. The other part we did was we want to show the difference in intensity, uh, uh, grazing stock density, basically. So we've got three paddocks, basically side by side by side. It is on the long rectangles just because they were already established. One is a moderate re regeneratively grazed piece of land. So basically like every, all the other ones, the one beside it is a mob grazing pasture. So we are, every time the animals go onto that piece, we strip graze down it in, in high stock density. So I think we were moving on average between two or three to four to five to maybe six times a day, depending on the year and depending on when we we're out there. Uh, but so we move multiple times a day on that one. And then the, the one right beside it is continuously grazed. Right. So there's a small number of animals out there for the whole summer on one pasture. So I think last year we had what 85 animals. There was five of them that went on the continuous grazed one and they sat there all summer, grazed the one paddock. And then the 15 paddocks we grazed uh, the rest of the herd on. So that's really already showing a big difference between the, the three types of grazing, especially the mob grazing right next to the continuous grazing. So we're hoping just to, to show this as a demo. We're not doing, we, we took soil samples and we're, we're trying to do some research, but we're doing this with zero funding. Um, this is just kind of, you know, the board wanted to do it. So uh, our manager found a way to make it work. So that's something that uh, it, it might've taken a little longer to get it up and running. It took us a few years to get the fences changed, but uh, we, we got her done. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to hear what John's doing with his out there. Um, ours is a pretty simple system, but I'm just you know excited that as people go out there, as producers come out to take a, a pasture walk out there, they can look at these different designs and and visually see differences, but by the designs and the the stock density. So now I'm going to turn it over to John. John, if you could you know uh, introduce yourself, kind of talk a little bit about your guys's project, and and we'll go from there. Okay, well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, so um, so I'm John Dinesfeld. I'm a researcher with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, based out in Nepan in Nova Scotia, so way over on the East Coast. So I've, I've been uh, working there since, uh, I guess, 2000 was the year I was hired. I was actually hired to do, I was to do a nutrition project on a bull test project, and I was hired part-time to do that. And it turns out they had a grazing project and go that summer, they needed someone to help do the research on. And the the fellow who hired me found out that I also was doing pasture management stuff at home. So that we were doing, we did, I ended up doing five years of uh, pasture finishing research that led into a bunch of stuff on ball grazing, bale grazing. And I guess the last 10 years, we've had some fairly interesting or interesting to me projects anyway, on with the funded by the beef cattle research council of Canada. So that's our Canadian cattlemen's association research funding um, looking at uh, a bunch of different things on forage mixtures and and different legume components in pastures. 
So the last five years, we've been working on actually our, our sort of the overarching project that our grazing management work is funded under is looking at ways of trying to increase or maintain the legume content of pastures. And part of what I really wanted to look at on that was how grazing management influences that. So there's a few different components to this, but sort of the, the big one that we, we have that's taking place over five years right now, and we're hoping to get it extended for another five years, um, is looking at using three different grazing densities on what are naturalized pastures. So I don't think they've been probably plowed or had much of anything done to them in at least 20 or 25 years. We're, we're, what we're trying to do with those pastures, we want to increase their lagging content. So every year, actually, we've been either frost seeding or no-till seeding birdsfoot trefoil into these pastures because that's the legume. A, it's not present in our pastures in the first place. Um, has a lot of desirable traits for us. We'd be non-bloating. And also just any, any research that's been done on birdsfoot trefoil in pastures or, or in feeds in general, animals tend to perform fairly well on that. And based on our, our previous five years work showed trefoil having a lot of benefits that way. So anyway, we have uh, three different uh, grazing densities that we're trying with this. So we have animals that are moved every eight days, animals that are moved every four days, and animals that are moved three times a day. Um, so we basically, not, not really that unlike the GROW project, we had a, a series of pastures. Now, now with this, where we're doing it for, from a research project, we actually have four replicates of each one of these treatments. So we have 12 paddocks all together. And with our, with our every eight day one, we basically just divided the, the paddocks into six different blocks so that we would have a 48 day grazing period, which would give us about a 40 day recovery period. And the animals are moved. We, we put them on the pasture when we deem there's enough grass there, but due to sampling to allow them to have their first eight day grazing and we rotate through the system. The four day ones are, are similar, but we have twice as many paddocks. And for the everyday moves, we use a, a full, uh, fully adaptive paddock size. So we're going out every week. We have a, a crew that's going out there taking forage samples and we're trying to estimate the amount of grass that's there. And we're trying to graze somewhere between 40 and 60% of the grass that's there. Depends a bit on the time of the year and what the, what the conditions are like. And then we use bat latches. Uh, so we move them once ourselves and we have bat latches set up. So we move them after lunch and the bat latches move them after supper. And again, first thing in the morning. And that gives them uh, an, a fairly flexible paddock size. In spring of the year, when we go out, it might be a strip that's like four or five times the size of what we're using sort of in late June, early July after our flush of growth. And we have lots and lots of grass and it gets tightened up. So we've been doing this, for, this will be our fifth season going into this summer. And we're, we're starting to see some interesting things with that. So what we're, we're doing, not measuring on this, we're measuring animal performance, we're measuring uh, changes in in forage yield, also changes in uh, botanical composition, especially our legumes, but also differences in some of our grass species. We've done an intensive botanical breakdown in year one, and we'll do that again this summer. We're also looking at uh, changes in soil carbon. So we've partnered up with uh, one of our research teams with Egg Canada out of Quebec, who's got a fair bit of experience in, in this area. And we're taking samples down to two feet in depth, and that's broken down into I think six different strata. So I think the top two inches and the next two inches, and then there's a four inch and a four inch and can remember the exact breakdowns as it goes down. So looking at how that changes over, over time in each of these different management systems. And we're taking uh, 10 samples from each of the paddocks. So we have a good idea of what the, 
soil changes are going to be there. And also in addition to doing soil carbon and some of the basic soil characteristics, they're also looking at root sizes and rooting depth. So it's, it's kind of some interesting details we're getting out of that. And, and that's where I think really this extending it to 10 years, if we can get the funding for that will be really exciting because we can see how this, these changes in management will change over time. Excellent. Sure. Thanks, John. No, that was great. So the uh, being able to measure this over time, I think that's really important. I mean, the, our federal government right now is pushing a whole whack of money um, at trying to manage carbon, right? So being able to measure that, I think that's important, right? Right now, we took some soil samples, but I, I don't even know how many, I don't know if uh, Tom or Amber knows how many we took per per paddock. Jay will have that information. He's on the call, so he's with Gateway Research Organization as well. But I think if we can um, have Tom, Tom, if you're willing to just kind of talk about a little bit about the stuff that you saw last year, and then maybe we can have Jay talk a little bit too on the soil sampling and some of the research. Just about Jay, yeah, I'm excited to although I won't be managing there, uh, the pasture, I'm excited to see uh, Jay's results because um, what I see there, they're, they're going to have some uh, great information from the heifer pasture. So one thing that I saw uh, last year is we had great, great growing conditions at the start. Uh, so 20, 2020 was fantastic growing season. Uh, we had lots of moisture. And then over the winter, we had uh, good snow. And the start of 2021, we had a fantastic spring. And so we needed to get the cattle out early. And the only thing that happened was that we were expected to get some cool weather. So the cattle were backed off a week. But as it turned out, we didn't actually need to do that. But we backed the cattle off a week. And I believe our first day of grazing was uh, May 13th. And there was lots of uh, residue. And I think we would have been in trouble had we not gone out, um, had we not been out by May 13th, just the way things transpired, because we were able to get the grass clipped uh, early. And then uh, basically, you know, the end of May, the taps turned off and then mid-June, you know, the heat heat cranked. And I thought the grass had actually gone to into dormancy. But when I did um, the strip grazing uh, in the mob paddock, what I noticed was that the grass was still growing, uh, just that it slowed down a lot. And, you know, from where initially I was using like a 35-day recovery period, I went to a, a 40, between 45 and 50-day recovery period uh, because it, uh, the grass had slowed down that much. And one thing that, uh, or another thing that I noticed was that when I got around the second rotation, I realized we did not have enough animals uh, because what was happening was we only had, well, what did we have? We had uh, 80 heifers in, in that group that was moving and they were not clipping all the grass even though they, most paddocks they were in for three days, they were not getting all the grass clipped. So when we got around to the, the second rotation, there was already, there was a lot of grass that, uh, that was getting old. And I really noticed it in the third rotation, um, you know, when we were into September, they were not, 
that thrilled about the grass that was out there. Like we had, we had a pile of grass left uh, that they could have been grazing. And it just seemed like they weren't thrilled about it. Uh, and I think that was because we just did not have enough animals for the, for the amount of grass that we had. And of course that was not my doing. There was lots of, uh, uh, you know, I had a great start of the growing season, you know, because there was a pile of residue left and I just kept it going. But uh, like I said, we did not have enough animals and we could have easily had, we probably could have had 150 uh, in that group. That might've been being optimistic, but we definitely could have had 120. And I think we would have actually done better had we had 120 because more of the grass would have been clipped because what's sitting out there right now is a lot of fescue and Kentucky bluegrass. My experience is that when grass gets, um, you know, if it, it, it isn't uh, clipped and, it, and is let to go into stage three uh, growth, the end result is the, the fescue. And that's kind of what I've, uh, that's kind of what's out there in a lot of places, but it's on the cusp of, uh, there's a lot of plants that are on the cusp of, uh, of really expressing themselves. Like something that I was very surprised with uh, and excited about is all the Sicer milk fetch that was there. And my understanding, Sandeep told me that it's been, that was put there before he was, he became a manager of GOAT. So how, how, do you know how long uh, Sandeep has been there, Steve, or, or Amber? Sandeep's been with us for six or seven years now. Okay, that's um, right. So it's, it's at least seven years bef- uh, since that uh, Sicer milk vetch was uh, seeded. And Tom, in that pasture, we only started seeing Sicer milk vetch in the last two years, two, or two to three years. Like since we started the, the new management, that's when we started seeing the Sicer milk vetch. And you know what, that would go along with, uh, I, I have a friend, um, an older guy that, what well, he's 78 now, and uh, I believe three years ago, he started seeing this plant in his pastures and he didn't know what the hell it was. Finally, he went and he asked somebody, you know, what, what is this? Oh, that's Sysha Muffet. What? I seeded that in 1974. <laughs> but with his different management, those seeds are able to express themselves. I agree, Tom. Uh, I seeded Sicer milk vetch probably in about 2005. And about two years, I started seeing them show up, little, little patches of them. I'm, I'm, I'm babying them, hoping that they will spread now. I purposely let them go to seed and let the cows go out and eat it after. I'm trying to get them to spread it because it's so you know, few and far in between. But uh, yeah, it takes a long time to get it to kick in the gear. Yeah. It, it's a Sicer milk vetch, uh, like what I'm seeing there at the pasture, it's... Uh, it's pretty exciting. And um, a friend of mine, well, Marty, Marty Lawrence from Stetler. Uh, I call him Mr. Uh, Marty Milkvetch. It's pretty phenomenal what that Milkvetch uh, has done at his place. And I was like, when I saw that, that you know, those big patches of uh, Milkvetch coming, it was just very exciting. But interesting. So uh, what we finished there on, um, I want to say the 19th of the 19th of um, October. And that last paddock, before I moved them to the Krells, that was one of the paddocks with uh, lots of Sicer milk vetch. Those heifers absolutely love that stuff. And uh, I was surprised, holy shit, they took it down. <laughs> like, like they ate it like candy. 
<laughs> so, but anyways, I I'm really excited uh, about seeing what's uh, what's going to happen with that uh, Sizer Milkedge, and uh, yeah, perfect, awesome. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Um, Jay, could we get you just quickly to kind of go over some of the soil tests and stuff that we're looking at and what we're we're measuring for? There. Okay. Yes, I think I'm unmuted now. You betcha. We're looking at uh, what we think is the complete picture. Yes, we're looking at some of the physical structure, the 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 uh, ability for it to take up moisture, how hard it is, the penetrometer readings, those sorts of things. We've done, you know, uh, for the physical side of things, we've done about 10 in a, in a benchmark location that we'll go back to every year to look at the changes. We look at the chemistry as well, of course, uh, to see what's, what's happening up and down with uh, availability and presence of all of the standard nutrients, whether it's nitrogen, phosphorus, any of the, the miners as well. But uh, the fun and cool part that we're really enjoying is that we're taking composite samples in each of the, we've got four paddocks that we're looking at, two rotationals, one continuous, and one mob grazing site, where we're looking at the biota and seeing uh, whether we're seeing improvement in the good bacteria, good fungi, that sort of a thing, and a decrease in the in the low ones. Uh, so far, it's been, it's been quite interesting, the rotational pastures that we've been uh, sampling, and, and I, I have to preface this all by saying, um, it's just one composite sample per, per location. So uh, is it statistically valid? Heck no. But uh, it, it may be an indication of what is happening and what is seeing. And we're going back to the same location year after year. We are seeing what appears to be an improvement of the, the good bugs in the rotational grazing. Uh, that seems to be quite uh, comparable in the two of them and significant. The mob grazing seems to be in the, in between. And then the uh, conventionally, uh, continuously grazed pasture is the uh, is the lowest for some of the good bacteria and highest for some of the bad uh, bad bacteria, fungi, uh, actinomycetes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, it's a trend. If it keeps going year after year, or if we uh, get really ambitious and decide to look for four or five benchmark samples per location, we might be able to to to, to stick our, our flag in the ground and say that this is statistically significant. But for now, it's interesting. It's it's quite exciting um, to see that there are changes from field to field. And these, you know, I, I, I can walk it. So it's it's just a few few hundred yards from from uh, paddock to paddock that we're checking. So within a relatively small distance, there seem to be some pretty interesting changes. Uh, I am very curious to see uh, what's happening on the East Coast as to whether John's doing any of the, particularly the biota work as well. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. Um, we had, Brian has a question. Yeah, my question was for Tom. He thought um, that maybe he didn't have enough cattle on that uh, pasture, um, especially with a drought last year. Wouldn't that have been a good thing? Uh, to leave grass behind? Uh, Brian, we left a lot of grass. <clears throat> this this is something that, you know what, I'm going to say it here, uh, but I'm a little leery about writing it in, in the articles that, um, that I write. My feeling is don't be scared of drought. And when I say that, um, I'm talking about last year, we started out the season. It was a fantastic season. There, there was um, talk about we're in for, for a big drought, but the conditions on the ground in, uh, you know, the end of April, beginning of May were fantastic conditions. So 
the principles still have to be adhered to. You've got to get the grass clipped. Uh, you can't stay in a paddock too long. And in this case, at this time of year, at this latitude, it's three days. So you got to get moving and you got to get clip, 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 clip at that time. Then you have to adjust things, um, you know, your recovery period accordingly. But I started out the season, the conditions were there, even though I know, you know, I was hearing all this stuff on the, um, on the news about this drought coming, but that's not what I saw. So I, that's what I started with. And I, I went with those conditions. So what um, there's lots of grass left uh, at the heifer pasture, but that's in my mind. Well, not in my mind. In, in my experience, that's because we started early and those uh, the plants started to to grow. The plants start to grow right away when the conditions were good. And then when they slowed down, I slowed down. I'm not sure if I could say more more than that, uh, but. Yeah, the more that I see, so uh, last year was the third drought that I've seen. I started grazing uh, in 2000, and that's the third drought that I've seen. Only three, Tom? Shut up, Steve. I'm talking. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyways, that's um, the third drought, the serious drought that I've seen uh, since 2000. And I would say at the heifer pasture, we did not have a drought because, because of the, the early getting out early and getting that grass growing and using the conditions that were there in the spring. Since that time, I've actually read, uh, some, some research that I was reading about, um, something else. And in that, uh, in the paper that I read, uh, they were talking about something called, um, uh, compensatory photosynthesis. I was just like, oh, wow, that's, that's really exciting. And what I realized was what I've been calling waking the grass up is just a biological um, phenomenon called compensatory photosynthesis. And what I'm, what I'm finding is if we wait, you know, if, if, uh, the prediction is that we're going to have a drought and we keep waiting and waiting, you know, and, and putting off, putting the cattle out, we miss that opportunity and the grass goes into stage three and we miss the opportunity for that compensatory uh, photosynthesis. So I'm not sure if that answered your question, Brian, or not, but it's, it's not a matter of taking the grass down. You still have to follow those, those principles. Like um, I always go back to what Steve talks about building a, a home for the, the biology in the uh, soil, you, you can't mess that up. You have to, you have to follow that, um, that thinking of you're always building a home. So you need lots of ground cover. All I'm kind of putting in there is making sure that the grass stays in a vegetative state. Mm-hmm. Well, we were, we entered our third year of drought, so we didn't have this good start to begin with here, so, oh. but you had different conditions. So no, we just went over everything, daily moves, and never went back. You know, took what we could get, but okay. different to start off the year. Yeah, and you know what, Brian, I um, I have to tell you, I've only really had so, I, like I said, I had three years uh, of severe severe drought that I've experienced. I have uh, my first uh, four years of grazing was uh, dry, but. I cannot uh, say that I have experience with uh, successive years of severe drought. Uh, okay. Before I leave this, just uh, 
uh, Amber, I want to mention um, Jay had talked about the the mob grazing, and I just want to mention about the pictures that you took. So on the mob grazing, when Amber came out, I think that was the second rotation we did on that. Yeah, when you came out to do some filming, and I was moving every four hours on that paddock. As I was walking through the paddock, I noticed that there was no difference from the paddock right beside. And remember those pictures that you took? I think you have it, you posted them on the grow site or because uh, Amber had a, a drone and I just asked her to go up and take um, a drone picture of those two paddocks side by side. And in that picture that she took, you can't see a difference between the rotational grazed paddock and the mob grazed paddock. And I was thinking about why that is. And then I realized I trained those heifers the first two weeks to act as a herd. And what I found was throughout the summer, they all moved as a herd. So they were, we were getting mob grazing without the labor uh, by doing that. And you know what? I encourage it, uh, everyone to go and have a look at that picture that Amber took because uh, it's just, it's, it was surprising to me to tell you the truth. I'll repost that for sure. Okay. John, do you have any comments kind of on leaving grass behind or what you see as being the most beneficial for stocking rates and how fast you want to move, how early you want to get on that type of thing? God, that's lots of things there to work with. Um, as far as for grass left behind, I, I do like to have a fair bit of cover left just uh with our growing seasons here in the east, we we usually have a good bit of rainfall through May, June, early July, but we do have a, a pretty dry period for us anyway through mid-July to to the end of August, usually, and then the hurricanes start to roll by up, up, up the coast and we get a little bit of rainfall from that. But in that period, if you don't have that soil cover, you don't the soil gets too warm and you end up losing a, a whole lot of moisture to just straight up evaporation as opposed to having that cooler soil that just holds the moisture better and lets, keeps the biology, everything healthier. Most of what we have here, we have basically no warm season grasses that would be natural in our pasture. So it's all cool season grasses. So the, as soon as that soil gets too warm, then they should shut down. So then you're left with a few legumes. But yeah, so having, having that residual is, is important. I, I feel just for trying to manage that soil moisture and that soil temperature through, through our summer periods. As far as getting out in the spring, when I, I, I kind of see that from two perspectives with our research project, we kind of have our sort of our criteria. We have that based on, we're looking for about 3000 pounds of dry matter per acre, just because that we have to have a, a number because it becomes publishable on my own farm. It's, it's really highly variable. I have sheep that went on pasture on Sunday because we have a whole lot of stockpile that was left from last year. We've had a little bit of an earlier spring. There's already grass there that's at, at the two to three leaf stage in, in that stockpile. So it's, it's, you know, it's good to get out, out there. And then plus I had to get them out there because we have a bird flu outbreak going on now and we do free range chickens, but we're not allowed to put our chickens out until early May, but I have meat birds arriving next week and I, my lane hen should be on pasture, but they can't be on pasture. So the sheep had to go on pasture. So anyway, <laughs> but, I, but we, you know, we, we've had sheep out as early as like the, the third week of March on stockpile. And then going into especially tall fescue, something that can handle that bit of a uh, early setback, it kind of helps give some of your other species a bit of a 
a chance for competition. Tall fescue and orchard grass are the tend to be the species that we put the boat on earlier. So if there's more to your question. Ac Excellent. Thanks, John. Last year we could have used some of those hurricane rains out here. I think that would have been nice. Um, so it, it's funny the the different environments that we talk to people in, right? We have different problems. We have different advantages. We have different different disadvantages, right? Um, it's amazing. I love just hearing the 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 context from from what uh, different environments have. But so back to Brian's question uh, about the should we leave the residue? That was the original question and. The difference, I think Tom did did say it, the grow heifer pasture, I don't think was really in a severe drought last year. It had moderately rotationally grazed for 30 years. It's, I'm not going to say it's low land, but it's lower land. And it was left in really good condition, right? Tom, Tom stated there that they had lots of residue and they got, got to go out there early, lots of residue. So there's a big difference between a piece of land that's in, that has been managed well the years before and then you hit a drought compared to the one that's constantly overgrazed and hits a drought. You know, Tom saying we needed to take more is because he wasn't really in a severe drought like some of the other land around it around us was. Um, I've, I've got pastures like that too. I've got a pasture that I've been managing for 20 years. I'm going to say it wasn't in a drought last year. Absolutely not. It did fine. We did great. We grazed until October. We had good gains. We had lots of pasture till the end. The other pasture that I've only had for three years, well, yeah, we were in a severe drought. We shipped home early. We didn't get the, the I think I ended up figuring out we got 64% of the average production of the previous few years. So it, it depends a lot on previous management. So in Tom's view there, they didn't take enough because it wasn't really in a severe drought. Whereas, you know, other, other situations, you know, across the fence, I know there's cattle across the fence that from the grow heifer pasture, I bet they were in a severe drought last year. So that's a big difference, right? It's previous management. Okay, Amber, you got another question coming at us? Um, I would actually just like John to kind of dig in a little bit more about what rotation, like I, we talked a couple of weeks ago and we talked a little bit more about what the rotation at the pasture you guys are doing research on has looked like and like how many times a day moves and just kind of go a little bit more in depth on that project. Okay. Typically we've been getting, with the exception of two years ago, we've been getting three to four grazings over the course of the season. In 2020, we had our version of a drought here, which was actually, we had about well, less than 25% of our average rainfall for, for a growing season. So it had quite a significant impact. We actually only got one, one full rotation on most of our paddocks that year, just be, because of the, for, for rainfall. But, um, so with our everyday or our three time a day move, we call them the everydays just because we're all moving physically every day, but with, with the everydays, they are, like I say, it's a variable paddock size. So it's truly that sort of adaptive paddock so, so the actual stocking density of pounds of animal per per acre really is is changing based on the on the amount of dry matter that's available in the pasture for them to eat and it's, it's kind of it's really quite an interesting one to to watch how the animals do with that and we we do find that the grasses are growing back actually a lot more competitively in that one i feel than than they are in the other ones we're getting more grazing days per acre we're getting more animal gain per acre because of those extra grazing days looking so we, we have four uh, four years of data right now on on our animal performance we and we're seeing not a big deal of difference between the 
ones that are moved on the three time a day versus the ones that are moved every four days. But the ones that are moved every eight days, we are seeing not as good a performance from them. And we're, we're seeing definitely a drop in the number of grazing days per year we get out of that. So our regrowth just isn't the same. And, and to walk through the paddocks, you can visually see that. You can, um, at the end of the eight days, there's just a lot more patchiness. And it, well, as most of you probably know, when you, that patchiness kind of becomes more and more apparent as the season goes on because the animals keep going back to those shorter pieces and keep leaving the taller, taller grasses. So you just get more of that, that variability from, from place to place in the paddock where with the ones that are moved three times a day, that uniformity is, is, you know, you can't really tell so much where the, where the lines were for the subdivisions over time. And the four days are kind of in the middle on that one. So Steve, you had said that I said that we, we didn't take enough. Uh, you know, I would like to take more. That's actually not what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying is that there weren't enough plants clipped. We didn't have enough animals to clip all the grass in three days. And so then we're, we're getting into a situation, uh, what John is talking about, just on a, a different scale. Like they weren't, they weren't taking grass down any place. You know, they weren't coming back to regraze those areas. What happened was that there was just a lot of grass that got old because it, there just weren't enough animals to clip it. So it wasn't a matter of taking, taking more, more mass or biomass off. It was just that it wasn't getting clipped. Okay. So your plant utilization wasn't even right. The more animals would have allowed you to knock it down more evenly is what you're saying. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a little cautious about saying knocking down. I just, like even just a little bit, uh, you know, like the, the, a little bite off of each plant. Uh, I know that's, that's a fine line and maybe, you know, I don't have to worry about saying, you know, uh, getting uptight about, uh, about that designation. But uh, to me, in my mind, that's, that's what it is. There weren't enough plants. There weren't enough animals to go and take a little bite off of everything. And in two days. Excellent. Thanks, Tom. Uh, John, uh, to your point, I'd like to add the the difference between your four day moves and your eight day moves. That's a big distinction there that I want to make sure people understand. What's happening there is the second bite, right? And the four day moves, you're getting the animals off before those plants start to regrow, and that's the whole key behind, you know, stopping overgrazing is to make sure the animals are removed from that paddock before that second bite occurs, where the, the plants get to start regrowing and the animals are allowed to take a second bite. Whereas on your eight-day paddocks, right, they're constantly out there that as soon as the those plants start to regrow, I mean, that's the, that's the candy, right? That's the ice cream that those cattle are going to go to, those nice new little shoots coming up. Boy, those are yummy, right? So that's really a big deal. I mean, the whole aspect behind the grazing uh, concepts is to stop the second bite and that's what i can see there is your eight day paddock moves are allowing the second bite and your four day ones maybe are not allowing that so that's a big difference there no absolutely i'd agree with that 100 percent. and and it's interesting to watch the behavior of the eight days by day six they're looking hungry even if there's grass left because they're looking for that that candy, that that high carbohydrate, new growth that's that's sitting at, at the edge of the leaf, but they've eaten all that, and they don't want to go back to that dry old 
crust of bread like you know it's, it's just not not appealing to them so you know by day a lot of time especially later in the season day six they're they're complaining i know the crew will say you know should we move them should we move them? it's like no this that's the point of the project why would i eat the cauliflower when there's steak absolutely I actually have a question about that. And I guess it comes more to sort of the people side of things. Have you found that the people that are working for you, like the people who are just moving, I, it, within research, I mean, you need it to be controlled and stuff like that. So are you, do you have people that are hired that come from a research background to do this or is it pretty open-ended? So the I have uh, two technicians who do most of the the sort of the measurements, the the layouts, and they do most of the moving through the week. But we do have sort of our general farm crew that is doing some of that moving on on weekends and helping out with the with the gathering the animals when we're doing the weighing and that. So we do we do have a bit of a mix there, and typically when we are doing the like the ones that are moved three times a day, we have everything set out. So all they have to do is just move those three wires for each group. So it, it typically, I think it takes probably 10 to 15 minutes for each group to move those three wires because everything's just pretty straightforward and, and laid out that way. Are you tracking it on a grazing chart or how are you keeping records? Well, every, everything's written down. It's not on a grazing, but we, we do have, yes, a, a record of all those moves and, and, and where they're, where they're at, because that's part of going back and figuring out our different performance things we're measuring on the, on the pastures, on the the yields and stuff and i can't remember you guys are doing the economics on that one or no no you're not right no no okay. not on that one yeah but just because of the scale like we're doing it on really doesn't yeah it's, it's different on your farm though you look at the economics of the different practices yes like yeah and and i know like it's someone on our own farm so we've been doing probably from about mid mid to late June onward, we'll do a two or three day move on our herd, depending upon what we have going on again, using these bat latches. But it, um, the last couple of years, uh, it's been our our beef cattle, our cow calf and our finishing cattle that have been together. And it's a group of anywhere from 55 to 80 head, depending upon the time of the year, what we have. And the move takes probably 20 to 30 minutes to set up the, the three wires. Um, but we've we've kind of laid our farm out so that's in these relatively long narrow strips, which makes it very easy to set up in a, in a totally adaptive period. Even in the spring, like we're we're setting up the paddocks for the animals because that way we can have a, a like a one or two day move if we want to to try and get that density spread out, so we're not having as much pugging on the soil. But it gives us quite a bit of flexibility that way, and it could be sheep or it could be cows, so that has a big bearing on how we have to set things up too. Right. Steve, do you want to talk a little bit about speed of moves and like how long labor components and then economics a little bit? Yeah, that was on my mind anyway. There's a, a, a huge debate between stock densities, right? Like you, you can get on a social media feed and boy, there'll be a lot of experts out there doing a lot of different things. Now, high extreme stock densities versus low stock densities. Okay, so let's look at the two extremes. Very low stock density is continuous grazing, right? They have the whole field for the whole summer. Uh, very low labor, but probably, well, obviously negative for the land, right? So we're not going to do any improvements. We're going to, the land's going to go backwards. On the other end of the spectrum, 
we've got extreme high stock density. So moving multiple times a day, um, you know, maybe six times a day, eight times a day. Some guys move 10 times a day. Really good for the land, but your labor and equipment component goes through the roof. Okay. Somewhere in the middle between those two extremes is the perfect stock density for your farm for that pasture. It, it depends on a lot of things. There's a lot of factors in there, but we have to include the economics behind it as well. So we have to understand the labor and the equipment costs. Um, real simple. Let's say you've got a piece of pasture that's right outside your back door that you could walk to. Well, that's pretty simple. You can go out and move cattle a couple, few times a day and, and your labor and equipment costs don't go through the roof. What if your pasture is 50 miles away? Okay, can you go down... You know, do you go down and spend the whole day and move cattle or do you drive back and forth six times to move that fence, right? Your labor and equipment can go, you know, a lot higher depending on your situation. So that's something that we really have to take into consideration when we're, th- when we're thinking about stock density. So real quick example for, for my ranch, I had a piece of land or I still have a piece of land that's about 25 miles away. Okay, so it's a fair little jaunt to get down there. For years, I've only had, I think it was only 500 acres. I could only put 100 bred heifers there, just for, as an example. Only about 100 bred heifers. So, you know, my labor and equipment cost doesn't divide out very well for 100 heifers. For me to drive 25 kilometers, like if I did that four times a day, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going broke because it's not worth it for 100, 100 heifers. So I actually set up my grazing plan so that I move twice a week. Right. So nice, moderate rotation, pretty slow, slower to heal the land, but I'm still controlling the second bite. I'm not overgrazing. So it, it, it improved. Right. We did well over the first. I think I had it for about six or seven years that way. And it improved over over time. Then I got a bunch of more land with it. That's what I was kind of waiting for is I was trying to get more land with it. Um, so for the last three years now, we've had eleven hundred acres down there. OK, so eleven hundred acres. Now, I think last year we had what was it? Uh, 500 steers down there. So now 500 steers, I can drive down there every day. And that labor and equipment cost divides out a lot better with 500 steers versus hundred. So now we're down, we're moving every, every day and it uh, works out a lot better for the economics. And now we're getting better improvements and we're going to get faster improvements with the, with the land as well. So there's a balance on every farm where, where that high stock density, maybe that's not the way you have to go to begin with, right? Maybe we got to pick somewhere in the middle. So that's something that I've been, uh, you know, fighting with some very experienced grazers with for many, many years, because, you know, the higher the stock density, the better, right? That's, that's the be all and end all. And you know what? Not always, right? We have to take the farm's context into consideration. Um, They, it, it, the economics might not work for that. So did that work, Amber? Amber, could I jump in here? Go for it, Tom. Because something that I noticed uh, was about eight years ago is that when your animals are trained to act as a herd, they create that high stock density without having to do uh, any extra labor. And that's where uh, what I was talking about earlier about those two pictures that you or that uh, that drone picture that you took of those two. Uh, pastures, uh, those two paddocks that uh, look the same. And I walked, I walked both of those paddocks and visually I could not see a difference. I really believe that, and, and 
I really believe that what I've, I'm seeing is it's because the animals are trained to act as a herd. So they, they move around as a herd. And so then uh, without any extra labor, you're getting the high stock density. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. John, you have your hand up. Is that because you want to talk? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, just there's, there's another element to this uh, stock density. I'm not sure if it's necessarily stock density as it is at frequency of moving. So one of the things that we're measuring at Nepan with, with this project is we're, we're trying to estimate the animal's daily intake. And we are seeing that the animals being moved three times a day are eating probably about 10 or 15% more feed than the ones that are being moved every four days or every eight days. And if I go back a little further, so my kids going through high school, they always had to do science fair projects and my kids always end up doing farm-based science fair projects. So in grade 11, my grade 10 and 11, my daughter's science fair project was on stocking density. And so we had a group of 130 or 40 head of cattle. So the first year, she looked just at grazing behavior. So we moved them either every second day, which was our standard practice for that group, or six times a day. And there's a quite a change in their grazing behavior and, and the time of the day when they're grazing and how much time they're spending uh, lying down and ruminating, but in particular, how much time they're spending grazing. Um, and they spend a lot more time grazing in the afternoon because they're being moved in the afternoon and being offered this fresh grass. So the second year, she looked at the the amount of feed they were eating, the dry matter they're eating. And there was about a 20 to 30% increase in intake moving every six times a day as opposed to every second day. And if you're trying to finish animals on pasture, perhaps you know if that's one of your goals, then the more frequent move may have a benefit because you're increasing that intake. Not unlike if you go to a dairy farm that they have these little robots now that'll go and push the feed into the cows you know, every, every hour. And every time that robot comes along and pushes the feed in, the dairy cows get up and they have another bite of eat, have food because they have fresh feed. And that, that gives them more, more productivity. So that, that's an, another element of this frequency of moving. And like I say, that's not strictly dependent upon stock density, but it is on, on, the, on this frequency of moving. John, I, I can add to that a little bit or a question, a question for you on that. <laughs> what about time for ruminating? Right. I mean, it's interesting. at what point does that it's too much for the cows and, and they don't ever have time to sit down and just ruminate? They it's, it's interesting to watch like those those six time a day ones that were moved. They were the quietest cattle we'd ever had because we knew we didn't at that time we weren't using bat latches or anything. That was just, you know, a, a little bit of a project that Marie wanted to do. And but they would graze for, you know. 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. We're moving them every two hours at that point because we're just moving them during the daylight hours. And then they would just go and lie down and chew their cud. And then when you'd come along again, they would just all get up and go to that new strip of grass and and do their thing. And then they would go lie down again. It was just, uh, yeah. But, but I think part of it is that they're eating. It's, it's what, I guess, animal behavior is sometimes called a dessert effect. You know, you'd have your big Thanksgiving, your Christmas dinner, and you're full, you've eaten all the turkey, you're full of potatoes, and someone brings out the pie, and you've always got room for pie. And it's the same thing. So, you know, they're lying there chewing their cud, and they're having a good old time enjoying the sunshine, and, oh, there's some more fresh grass. Well, that's, and, and, you know, and they're going through there. She also looked at the, the amount of leaf and legume they were eating, and they're, they were, you know, almost all of what they're eating was leaf and legume. So they're, they're picking the, the cream of the crop every time that way. And we've had tremendous luck with our grass finishing program, having the animals move that three time a day. We're getting really good marbling on our stakes coming through that. So 
That's really interesting. And I think that's one of the things that we are missing with the heifer pasture project is not looking at how it affects the animals. So we are looking at the pasture and the improvement on the pasture, but because we have contributors and, you know, three to five to seven contributors a season, um, it's really hard to do any animal uh, any testing on the animals because it's different herds coming in different genetics different everything so it's it's a lot more difficult so that's really interesting um blue set you had a question yeah actually well i have a follow-up i was wondering um during those frequency of moves uh, especially multiple times in a day were you um were you testing the sugars like bricks meter like i've often heard that the bricks count is higher in the afternoon. So therefore um, the cattle prefer to eat in the afternoon because the sugar content is higher. I, I haven't done any peer reviewed research on that myself. <laughs> so I was just wondering, and then I have a question for you about your research. So do you want to just add to that first? Sure. So we, we haven't actually done any measurements at this point on the, on the bricks or on sugar content. But that is something actually I, I do have an extra student helping out this summer. So I'm thinking that maybe maybe we can add that, add that in there. Yeah. And that would be quite interesting. I, I know the research does tell us that if, you know, from sort of late morning until until supper time or so, there is an increase in the sugar contents in the grasses and, and sort of that sugar, especially the sugar to protein ratio, which is kind of one of these key ones that determines. Yep. that energy balance is is better but typically the animals don't do much grazing in in mid-afternoon because it's warm and they just kind of want to lie down taking the sunshine depending on the heat yeah yeah i um i know that um i would and i was also going to add that our frequency of moves often depends on who's available for labor so we have an internship program and when the interns here you know, our land has improved significantly more than when we do not have an intern here or, you know, kids out of school. And uh, I heard a really interesting, um, to your point, Amber, this afternoon, a certified educator from South Africa was talking about the emphasis that um, South Africans now that are sort of on the cusp are spending more time on their land and less time on their livestock. So, and, and the, this educator was saying how we need to make sure that there's a balance between the two, that we're not just swinging the pendulum. You know, we were performance related in, in our cattle for so long and now we're shifting and we may just sort of forget about the animal health and everything because we want to know what's going on with the microorganisms and the, you know, bacteria to fungal ratio and things like that. Anyway, so to, to my question, sorry, I'm rambling here, but uh, John, it's about your research. And I see you put a little bit in the, in the chat, but um, could you expand like who, who is going to benefit? And uh, I mean, I think I know the answer to that question that many people could, but who are you hoping will grasp the results and the outcomes of your research? Um, because I, I would surmise that anecdotally people who've been practicing for years already know that it's, that there's a, a best practices but we've never taken the time to, to do the research. And so the research is sort of catching up with the best practices. So who are you hoping will grab onto this and run with it? Well, I'd agree 100% that if the people who have been doing this for a while and, and are, are competent graziers, they they know kind of what works for them and know that there's, there's that frequency of move that 
that's you know, that tipping point, like Steve has mentioned, like that three or four days where that grazing, that second bite starts to happen. So you want to avoid that as much as possible. Really, we have a, a lack of uptake really in general in grazing management, at least in the Eastern Canada that, that we see where there's just not as many people that see the value and the benefit to it. So, you know, if we sort of hit like, Part of, part of this is the soil carbon side of it, but, but part of it is to be able to demonstrate that at these, as, at an increasing level of grazing intensity, these are some of the benefits that you may or may not expect. And just from a, an ability to help influence people to find that level that might work better for them and, and make improvements on their individual operation, I think that would be quite helpful. Thanks, Lucette. Um, one thing that I could add to the previous conversation a little bit, Everything on stock density depends on your context, right? If you're a dairy farmer and you're trying to do milk production, well, then your, you know, four or five or six times a day move might be the, the best thing for that situation. But if you're putting out bread heifers and you're a cow calf guy, well, you know, maybe, maybe that labor component to move six times a day is not going to, to, you know, break even for you in that situation. So I can't emphasize enough. Everything's with context. It's with your environment. It's with your farm. It's with your personal restraints, your herd restraints. There's so many different variables in there, but we take the idea and we adapt it to our situation and make it work for, for each individual farm. No, that's, and another thing to that point too, like oh, here in, in the East, there's times of the year you would never even think about a high stock density grazing because you would end up with mud. And, you know, May, early June, man, oh man, you want to talk about a mess. Yeah, there's so many extremes. I'm working with the, as you know, John, the Canadian, Canadian, what is it? Forage mentorship program. I don't even remember what we're yeah. calling it yet. Advanced grazing uh, management. There you go. Adv advanced grazing system. So we're yeah, working we on this program and we're dealing with every different environment across Canada. I mean, Canada is one of the only countries that has every ecosystem right? From desert to rainforest. So we've got all these different areas, all these different ecosystems that we're trying to build a program for. And every area, I'm going to say this right now, every area area is special. Because <laughs> when I'm in meetings with them, it's like, well, we're special because of this, or we're special because of this. Well, you know what? The idea behind this is that the concepts are adaptable to the environment. That's the beauty of this is that the concepts work in any environment. So we just have to make sure that we're adapting to the situation. And again, that the differences, we have to take the idea and adapt it to your environment. And that's, that's, what's going to make this work. So yeah, I'm excited about this program and uh, we're going to get it out there, even though everybody, everybody's special. <laughs> I'm special. <laughs> anyway, um, next we have Graham. Are you ready to go, Graham? I am. Hi, John and Steve. I want to dig back into your comments and discussion about how to charge the labor to what you're doing. And so I can better understand if you're dealing with your, your hired man, and let's assume it, it takes that move an hour. Are you ensuring that you're doing the cost accounting side? So you've got the, the wage plus top up, you know, Plus your T4 and CCP. So if you're if you're if uh, the net wage to the employee is 15, you're actually charging that out at 18 dollars an hour. And if the owner is doing it, then are you how are you dealing with the um, cost accounting approach for you know principal payments, business with uh, personal withdrawals from the business, so and so forth, and and how are you dealing with the bottom side of the equation of how many billable hours 
you know, over the year, can the owner charge for that labor? So have you got into that on, on, uh, as you're dealing with the, the, uh, the economics of, of those projects? So with, in the context of my research program with Agriculture Canada, we aren't doing keeping track of, of those kind of things, but in the context of my own farm, yes, we, I, I put a value of $20 an hour for anyone's labor out there doing things. I have a range of 14 to, well, th- actually this year I'll have to opt that because I have a, a new employee coming on. It's going to be close to that $20 an hour mark. Uh, and then I also uh, I put in a cost for any equipment they're using. So if it's like the side-by-side, then it's, uh, it's like $35 an hour. And again, with the price of fuel going up, that'll have to go up. Or if it's like something like with with a tractor, then like our, our we have it's a hundred horse tractor that you know that's a hundred dollars an hour, and then the labor's on top of that, just be for you know to try and account for all the the full cost on that. But not not that we do much of our, our pasture moves with that, but like for fencing or things like that, or any, any like putting out bales for bale grazing, I I, I have have that cost at one hundred twenty dollars an hour. So with your labor, then uh, that makes rough sense if you've got a T four employee. But are you are you undercharging for the owners if the owner was going to do that labor? Probably, probably. I, I, I just uh, so much of the work that I get done is done by my employees because where I work off farm with the with Egg Canada, a lot of the work's done that way, and and actually. Most of the farm work, I don't know, I find the, I, I spend more of my time doing the managing side and making sure everyone's got what they need to to do their job. And and plus where we do direct market for our meats, I, I'm more on the marketing, marketing and the managing side, not so much on the, on the doing side. Graham, from my perspective, uh, I do what I call redneck economics. The reason I do redneck economics is because when I go out and teach people, Right. If I'm teaching them a gross margin analysis and, you know, to, to you know, run your cash flow and understand your finances, if I want anybody to actually adopt this, it's got to be simple and easy. So I would rather them do a, you know, close economics than for them to, you know, to give them all the exact details and make sure you work all these different details out and them to give up and say, I'm not doing this. This is too much work. So similar to John, I give an hourly rate, a simple one. What's the, what's the equivalent rate for a piece of equipment in a similar industry, right? What's, what's it worth to run a backhoe, right? If you got to hire a, a guy to come in and do a backhoe, that's the equipment and the operator. Well, value your tractor at that, right? And run that out in your, you know, redneck economics. Can you do the same job? charging your tractor and your laborer at that price and does your profit center actually make a good margin okay so you're, you're, you're mixing two things though steve you are mixing future economic your, the economics yes is a forward-looking discussion and it makes sense to take a look at what the market would charge somebody else and bring it back but that's a different discussion than the cost accounting of the actual enterprise of what the labor is worth and what the actual cash cost is to the enterprise for you doing it. And cash cost accounting has no economic opportunity cost in it. It's straight. It is a, in, in a sense of, it is a billable hour at cost. Yeah. I, I definitely separate out finances and economics, right? I, I tell people there's two different sets of books. 
if you want to look at something on a economic basis, this is how we look at it. If you want to look, you know, but finances is different, right? We might have to pay for that upfront and, and that's different. That's what our bank account's doing for me. So I've got two sets of, of books that I try and get. And again, I'm trying to keep them simple. So they're not perfect, but they're close, right? It's an estimate. It's a, it's a close. It's better than what most people are doing it, you know, before they come. <laughs> so yeah, it's close, but it's not perfect. I will admit that. So what it, what it makes it difficult then with with the, the research results, I bring it back to John. My challenge is is that if your research and economic analysis is based on the economic side, you've got an opportunity cost, you've got uh, you know an ROI, and you've got charges that are not cash realistic but are a fictional cost. You've already mixed cash and and non cash charges to to that bottom line result. So it, 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 it makes sense to run two sets of books. Here's the actual cash cost to do the transaction. And then if we are going to adopt it, then that's when you add the opportunity cost and a different measure of how you would charge that unit. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely makes sense. Um, it's, it's like I say, it's not part of what we're kind of doing. Part of the challenge with that project is like we're doing things on with the number of replications to be able to get scientifically valid data. But if we were trying to do that with, with our whole herd, our scale on that would be entirely different. We'd be having 120 cow-calf pairs. It would be moving that, you know, with the labor component per animal, everything would be so different. And, and it just the, even though all those opportunity costs become different because the, the scale and the, the equipment costs and everything are, are spread out over so many more animals. Is that yeah. And, and in my experience, you know, somebody is getting down to actually almost like an accounting firm, God forbid to Steve that, you know, this is not redneck math, but to actually figure out on a 15 minute section of your, of your farm, exactly who's doing what labor and what unit gets charged for that 15 minute or that half hour unit. So that gives you an idea of ultimately how many labor hours over the year that you're going to have to deal with. You know, an owner can't charge 365 days, as an example, but the T4 employee is only working eight or 10 days. And so there's only so many billable hours in that T4 employee, you know, over a week's worth of time. And the same thing is true on both sides of the equation for the, the cost of the owner and the billable hour against the owner if the owner is doing that labor. I think you guys are saying the same thing. Okay, I think it's just coming out differently, <laughs> honestly. Thank you for refereeing, Amber. <laughs> I do my best. That's my whole job. Um, we are going to move on to Coley Burgess. Hey, yeah. So I was, uh, I was just asking if this the same area is covered from. So if you're moving six times a day versus one time a day you know, you're, you're covering the same acreage in a day. So you're not giving them extra feed if you're moving six times a day. Yes, actually with the way that paddock or the field that we were working with for that group was laid out, it was actually two and a half acre blocks that the, the two day moves were in. So we just subdivided those into, into six strips using polywire. Yeah. And for the heifer pasture, that was the goal. If there was a, on average, those 16 pa or 15 paddocks, sorry, because it was one pulled out for the continuous phase. If on average, we're on each paddock for two days for part of the season, the idea was to get the, the mob grazing paddock strip grazed in two days. 
So we're trying to keep the graze period and the rest period the same. But what we're trying to do is increase the stock density and the animal impact, right? Those are the those are the big improvements in that, uh, you know, putting that extra labor and equipment into it. That's the, the benefit we're trying to get. So, yeah, we tried to keep them the same. And then just for some extra information, the um, continuous graze paddock has the same stocking rate as we have on the rest of the pasture. Can I ask a follow-up on that? Yeah. Just because knowing that, you know, you guys have a fair bit of experience in grazing. So are you expecting that with your rotationally grazed paddocks that you may have increased grass growth after four or five years down the road and that you might have to increase that? the number of days or grazed or animals on that, you know, to, to, to use the grass efficiently? Yes. And we actually already have noticed that. So we've been, as we started kind of getting a little more strict with rotation, when we first really started, you know, nailing it down and, and being a little bit firmer on how we were going to rotate, um, when we started, the pasture looked terrible. There were bald spots kind of all over the place. And in the last couple of years, we purposely went down in our, our stocking rate a fair bit so that we could allow the pasture to have recovery time. So the goal is that I would love to see it happen. We'll see if we, you know, if, if all things work out the way that we want them to in the next five to 10 years, it'd be really cool to see us go back up to the numbers that we saw when the pasture was first seeded back in the early eighties and they were getting a hundred and 50 to 170 steers out there. Um, so I would love to see that personally. We'll, we'll see how far we can push it and, you know, uh, while still maintaining good growth and not degrading the pasture over time. And I think that's the key. As a bit of a background to the heifer pasture though, years ago, they did a lot of fertility trials on those pastures. So when I actually first took came on the board back in 2001 I think it was right there was all sorts of fertility trials out there like they did uh, I remember I think there was two paddocks that were the control paddocks and I remember sitting in on that very first meeting they talked about how this paddock we did NKPNS in a split application this one we did just nitrogen this one we did it in a single application mid-season we did this one with micronutrients like they did all these different fertilizer trials was a big part of it and then the one comment they said well and and I remember it was R4 paddock R4 is the control so sorry back up all of these other paddocks they were the trouble they were having was that the the thatch layer was becoming too thick right and they were having troubles with seedlings developing and or or coming in they weren't getting this growth there was this huge problem like this was a, a big issue for them that the thatch layer was too thick and i'm going what how can you have too thick a thatch layer right it wasn't breaking down and they were actually talking about burning it off they talked about coming in there and burning this thatch layer off because it's too thick and it's causing problems i'm like wow what wait a minute then they said the answer they i remember them saying that 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 r4 the paddock that is the control is not having these issues, but it doesn't produce very much. So that doesn't matter. Okay. So that was a trigger for me right there. When I first came on, I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. It's not having these issues, but it doesn't produce very much. So we actually, a buddy of mine and I sat down and we ran the numbers that paddock R4 that doesn't produce very much actually tied for number one 
in profitability. Okay, there's a big difference between profitability and production. And that paddock was not showing these detrimental effects. So, you know, biology, management, animal impact, all those different things. And, and I know in chat, they were just talking about biological animal impact, right? Getting that saliva, the manure, the urine, the, the uh, you know, biology falling off the hair coat. There's a symbiotic relationship between the soil biology and the herbivore biology. And those are important. So when we're adding a lot of fertilizers, we're adding a lot of chemicals where, you know, they were constantly ivamecking the, the, the animals coming in back then. Our soil was not healthy. Our soil was dead. That's why we're having this thatch layer that's not breaking down. So as we get into this and we get better management, better biological animal impact in there, I'm hoping that we're going to get back up to those rates that they were talking, the, the number of animals out there. And as Tom already said earlier, that we didn't have enough animals last year. We need more animals um, because we're, we're getting in, into that situation where we've got biology helping us in, in, that, uh, in those paddocks. So, yeah, that's my two cents. Great. The time is flying by. We have time for one more question. So, Steve, I'll let you answer this one for the heifer pasture, but I might jump in there too. Um, does anyone's research involve land profiles and usage? Example, shade and water will always get more impact in summer. Should we be fencing based on land type versus diversity or only available forage? Yeah, there is a lot of land issues that you have to deal with when you're setting up a cell design, right? For 30 years, the grow heifer pasture has an alleyway system and the alleyway system goes through what is potentially lowland. And the, I'm going to say the South alleyway that goes out of that center, it was beat up, right? It was on a wet year. It's a mud hole. The animals are walking through, you know, a foot and a half of water to get out to the paddocks and the alley system on that side definitely was not the, the right way to go but it worked for like 30 years, right? It's just, it's kind of funny how it never got even looked at it. Nobody ever even thought about changing it. Whereas the other alleyway on the other side, I mean, it was beat up, but it didn't end up being a mud hole all summer long on a wet year. So we tried to change those so that we, on that side where the alleyway was so low, now there's a pipeline going out that direction and the uh, pie or the, the, the wagon wheel system. Okay, so we're trying to avoid that, that, that really low area so that the alleyway is not such a, a, an issue. And the other comment was on trees. Yes. Uh, the, the problem with the grow heifer pastures, there's very little trees. I think there's like sparse trees, you know, here and there in about maybe two paddocks, I think maybe three. So it's pretty hard to be able to, you know, on that hot week to be able to turn them into the trees. Whereas at greener pastures, most of our land has lots of bush. And it's you know, not, not an issue at all to be able to say, you know what, it's hot this week, we're going to head over and we're going to let them into the bush for the week because it's so hot, they need the shelter. So again, that comes down to where you are, right? Do you need mobile shade for those hogs because you don't have any trees or, or honestly, there's sometimes that I am managing for different aspects of my grazing, right? Sometimes I'm going to manage for the animals. Okay, I've got a set of animals in that they need some gains. My customers expect that we're going to manage for the animals. There's other times, like, for example, this year, the one cell that was, we were kind of hard on it last year. We're going to bring in bred heifers and we're going to manage for the land, right? They don't need quite, you know, not quite the gains that uh, the, the yearlings need, 
we're going to back off the rotation a bit and slow it down and, and let some, some heal a little bit. Other times we got to manage for the animal because of heat or cold or something in that case, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, uh, even though I've already grazed the bush, I might open up the gate to let them into the bush because it's so hot out and uh, they can graze through the bush paddock and still have a couple open paddocks to be able to graze. So I'm going to lower my stock density because it's, you know, like last, you know, 40, 42 degrees out. So we're going to make sure they have access for that full week. They can have that bush. I, I, yes, technically I'm overgrazing it. I shouldn't be out there for that, but because of the animals, I'm going to allow that. Uh, this year, next year, I'm going to treat that bush really nice. Maybe I'll only graze it once or maybe not at all because we don't have that issue. So we've got to understand the differences in the years, the differences in the situations and manage for what is the kind of the priority for that grazing that particular year. Yeah. So the way we have our project set up in Japan and as well as uh, at home, the way we do most of our grazing, we tend to try to have water in the paddocks because at the time of the year when we have a, we have a lot of rain, we can have a lot of rain and laneway systems and that just can, can really be difficult unless you put a lot of effort into having a laneway that can handle that amount of moisture. I've seen ruts that it, they'll be there for, for years and years and years just because it, you know, a laneway that just didn't work. But, but our scale tends to be smaller too. Like, you mean like, you know, like a, a big field for a lot of our pastures, with the exception maybe of some of our, our bigger dike land pastures, and that would be, you know, like a 20 or 30 acre field. So you have a little bit of contour change, like we have a lot of nice rolling hills in that, but we don't have the same, the same variations that way. And we also tend not to have so many brushy, bushy type patches uh, or tree type patch, because our forest land tends to either be forest land or, or it's farmland. So what you're saying is we should all move to Nova Scotia and start farming there. That's what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. We have all kinds of, actually all kinds of land too. So there we go. Okay. Do you have time for one more question, Karen? We have one last question on here. Sure. Okay. Karen, you ready to go there? I'm calling on you without giving. Uh, Yep. I'm ready to go here. Okay. Go for it. Um, so my question, John, is I'll just turn off my video because for some reason it's not detecting me. <laughs> so my question is um based on uh, everything fascinating talk tonight, uh, what what are some topics and what are some or some areas that you would really like to study more in the future? That's a really interesting question, and it's actually Part of what we're doing right now is in the process of putting together a project that will let us build on our our three different grazing management levels, um, looking more at the soil biology, but also at what's going on with the greenhouse gases, the um, in particular methane consumption by the pastures, um, and, and how that might be changing based on the soil biology and trying to, to make connections between those. There's really been none of that kind of work done in in the Maritimes or in Eastern Canada at all that I can I can really find any anyone who can tell me anything about that anyway. So so I think it's it's quite open. The other the other thing I'd like to look at a little more detail is what's going on with the the rumen of the animal, especially contrasting like the animals move like say every eight days versus the ones that are moved multiple times a day. So the rumen is its own little ecosystem, and if you picture an animal eating every eight days, like I mentioned, the, by day by day six, those animals are looking hungry. 
so they've eaten most of the leaves they've eaten most of the the legumes and most of what's left really is the stem and the stuff they really don't like so they're not eating a lot and they're eating fairly coarse stuff and then you move them to a new paddock so then what's happening you've got you know they're eating all kinds of high sugar leaf and good legumes and everything again so really it's the different rumen ecosystem that does its best on eating that coarse stuff versus the one that's eating that really good stuff so you you kind of get this constantly fluctuating ecosystem in the rumen and and what what does that really mean for the for the well-being and the, and the productivity of those animals and how you know what does, what does that change so from a research standpoint those are some of the things that i'm kind of intrigued by i can see a joint research project between uh, nova scotia and alberta and grow uh, trying to do the same things in different environments i can see that in our future john <laughs> i would love to see that that would be yeah. awesome because right now we research dollars behind this so we want to partner well, <laughs> we could do no. this let what if we could do a, a project like this in like you know let's say four or five of the provinces right, and measure it like that's to me that's valuable research that needs to be done so yeah i'm excited about this well yes um, i do a lot of research with a plant breeder um he and he has a plant breeding program that actually takes place all across north america and what they really find the most exciting is finding the plants that actually work everywhere rather than just finding the ones that work for a particular region because it's so much easier to to develop and market something that has that broad applicability just like you'd mentioned earlier about the grazing strategies that work but, but this understanding of how what works across varying environments is really i think helpful to understanding getting more people adopting better practices and and having success with them that's a fantastic note to end on. Um, I will ask if you have any final or closing thoughts. I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying final thoughts because that just doesn't sound good. Um, <laughs> if you have any closing thoughts or encouragement for producers that are going into rotational grazing before we close out. Well, I mean, every every step forward that that helps you to manage that grass and that that's ecosystem better so that you're you're getting a stronger stand of grass, a stronger uh, soil biology. It just, it's a, it's a step forward. And it might be that, you know, maybe you're not in a position for whatever reason that you could labor cash resources or whatever to, to get to like a, sort of that four day or, or, or shorter move. But every step you're taking away from that continuous grazing is, is going to be a, a, an improvement. And really, I, I think it's just, you, you do what you can do and, and, don't beat yourself up if it doesn't go right, because we all make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> That's fantastic. Steve, do you want to close out our last Wednesday night networking of the season? Yay. It's been a great winter. It's been awesome. I'm actually going to miss everybody, but the, the the issue with the summertime is everybody gets busy and it kind of dwindles out. And um, we will pick it up again, I'm assuming, next fall. And we'll kick into this again. And big thanks to everybody who's attended all the time. And a big thanks to John. Um, it's great. And I, I've got more to talk to you about right after this talk. And <laughs> I'm going to corner you. So hopefully you don't leave right away. But um, thanks to everybody. Thanks to John. Thanks to the Gateway Research Organization for making this a, a big success. And uh, really happy with uh, the results we've had over the last few years. So um, awesome. Thank you, everybody. God bless.